This weekend, we are starting a brand new series. We're calling it I Can Relate. It is a series on the family. And I just want you to know as we get into this series that this is a series for everyone because whether you're married, single, divorced, widowed, whether you're a teenager, a child, whether you're a student in college somewhere, you are a part of the family. And I'm telling you, we desperately need this series because as you're going to see this weekend, the family as God designed it, not, not the family as society has defined it, Okay. But the family as God designed it, it is a complete mess. It is serious trouble. And I'm telling you something, it's heading for extinction unless something is done. And if you don't believe it, let me just share with you some stats to, to kind of create the tension, understanding we need this series. In 1960, 73% of children were living in a family with two married parents in their first marriage. Today, that's dropped to 46%. I mean, we're moving in the wrong direction. In 1960, 87% of children lived in a two-parent household. Today, it's dropped to 69%. Wrong direction. In 1960, 9% of children live with one parent. Today, it's 26%. Wrong direction. In 1960, and I'll come back to this statistic later, why it's, why it's relevant. In 1960, the average American woman gave birth to 3.7 children. Today, that has dropped to 1.9, so it's cut in half. Unmarried women accounted for 41% of births in the U.S. in 2011. In 2011, 72% of births to black women were to unmarried mothers. 65% of adults agreed that it's a good idea to cohabitate before getting married. 72% of millennials agreed that it's a good idea to cohabitate before getting married. But this is probably one that bothers me. 41% of practicing Christians agree that it's good to cohabitate before getting married. 78% of 18 to 29-year-olds approve of same-sex marriage. By the way, someone recently approached me and said, same-sex marriage, Mike, you need to talk about it. It's destroying the foundation of marriage in our country. Let me just say something. Same-sex marriage is not destroying the foundation of marriage in our country. Do you know what's destroying the foundation of marriage? It's called divorce. I mean, listen to these statistics. 48% of all first marriages will end in divorce. 60% of second marriages. And 73% of third marriages will end in divorce. Which probably explains some of these statistics as it relates to our children. 75% of all high school students have used addictive substances, including tobacco, alcohol, marijuana, or cocaine. 46% of all high school students currently use addictive substances. 70% of teens will have sexual intercourse before their 19th birthday. 
and 33%, and I had to cross-reference this so many times because I couldn't believe the statistic, 33% of teenage girls will become pregnant. And even this weekend, as I was talking to one of our student ministry staff, they said there are now middle schools in Wake County School District that have classes specifically, middle school, that have classes specifically for the girls that are pregnant. And here's a troubling statistic. Of those girls that will get pregnant as teenagers, less than 50% of them will ever graduate from high school. But I want you to see, it is a mess. It's certainly moving in the wrong direction. It certainly isn't working when you think about the family the way that God designed it to work. But my goal this weekend is simply this. i got to show you how we got into this mess. Because if we don't understand how we got into this mess, we're never going to figure out how to get out of this mess. And to do that, we once again need to go to the book of Genesis. And uh, if last week was your first time, you may think, is that the only book you talk out of? Is the book of Genesis. But there's a reason we're going there this week. It is the book of beginnings. Think about this. Everything that began began in the book of Genesis. And the family began in the book of Genesis. The husband-wife relationship began in the book of Genesis. So if you have your Bible this weekend, at least it keeps it simple. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. That's where I'm going to start. And I'm not going to teach the whole Bible, so don't be nervous, okay? By the way, last Easter, it was last week we had over 18,000 people. It was really cool. But I met people who were so stressed out of me cutting up those jackets. They really were worried about that. In fact, one person came up to me and said, I thought you were going to slice up the jacket, and then somehow you were going to figure out how to make it become whole again. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I wouldn't be wasting my time here with you people. I'd be in, in Vegas making some money. You know what I'm saying, right? right. But uh, this is why. So we're going to go back to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. If you don't have your Bible, we'll put the verses on the screen. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now understand, this goes back to a time when there was absolutely nothing in existence except the Godhead. There was God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. This goes back to eternity past when there was absolutely nothing except God. And don't even try to think about it. We can't fathom it. You're just going to get a headache. But this is what's going on. And God decided that he was going to create. And if you read Genesis, the Genesis chapter 1, you'll see that he created light and the seas and land and vegetation, the stars, the moon, the sun, the birds, fish, livestock. And then on the sixth day, he created man. On the seventh day, you can read all about it in Genesis chapter 1, it says that God rested. But there's something interesting. Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. In other words, God stepped back looked at everything that he had created, and this is what God thought. Crushed it. Crushed it. Everything is here. Nothing is missing. And then you get to chapter 2, and you focus in, in, focus in on, or maybe zoom in on God's creative work of the sixth day, man. And we find God providing man with a place to live, chapter 2, verse 8. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, that would be Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And I'm guessing it was just an absolute unbelievable place. It was lush. It was fruitful. It was productive. My guess, it was maybe like one of the Hawaiian islands, you know. It was everything that Adam could have possibly wanted. And immediately God gave Adam a job. He gave him the responsibility of taking care of the garden. He said, this is your job. This is your responsibility. You can eat from it. You can live in it. You can drink from the rivers. And it would have never been polluted if it would have been kept in this original state. As I said last week, it was perfect paradise, and it was all for Adam. But then when you get to verse 18 of chapter 2, it says, The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. Now, we don't know what brought God to this conclusion. We don't know if he's observing Adam, and he's, he's just eating candy all day, you know? 
or he's just drinking beer all day, or you know, he's running through the garden with his shoelaces untied, sharp sticks in his hand. But God somehow thinks, this is not good. This guy's going to kill himself. i got to help this guy out. So he says, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, and I think this word was left out, but my guess is he said, wow, wow, right? This is now, and you, this, this, I'm going to come back to this phrase later, so just kind of file it away. This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And then you've heard this at weddings. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. And then it says this, Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. So they're living in this environment of total innocence. But understand, all of the beauty, all of the ecstasy, all of the delight of creation suddenly bites the dust when you get to chapter 3. Because as we saw last week, for the first time, the devil comes on the scene in the form of a serpent. And unfortunately, the, the story's way too familiar to be fresh. But he speaks to Eve. Unfortunately, she listens. Chapter 3, verse 6 when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some, she ate it. We talked about this last week. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And if you could look in the margin of my Bible, right there besides Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, this is what I wrote in the margin of my Bible. Idiot. Idiot. I mean, God had just told them, enjoy the garden, just don't eat from that tree. We talked about it last week, and they did it anyway. Why would they do that? We don't really know. We could say it has to do maybe with the curiosity of man. We could say maybe it's because of the nature of man. We're just inquisitive. But the reality is, before we're too hard on Adam and Eve, we do this all the time. We read in God's word, and God says, don't do this, don't do that. This is not good for you. Stay away from that. And we turn right around and do it. So we kind of understand where they're coming from. But this is what I want you to understand. Right here in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, this started the plot that will last throughout all time. It's this idea of good versus evil. And it began with the first family. Not the Trumps, by the way. Everybody thinks all evil comes from the Trumps. This is the first family, literally, okay, Adam and Eve. By the way, before I, before I move on with what I want to talk about this weekend, I don't know if you've ever thought about it or not, but we all have physical and biological characteristics, when you think about it, come from Adam and Eve. Does it matter what race you are? Does it matter where you were born? We are all related because we are all descendants of Adam and Eve. I mean, every one of us. So just turn to the person beside you and say, hello, cousin. Go ahead and do that. Hello, cousin. Now, I say that's weird if you're saying it to your wife, but the reality is, you know, the reality is we are all related. We're all from the same family. And that's why things like racism, prejudice, discrimination are just absolutely so stupid. At the end of the day, we all have DNA genetics that are passed down from the same family. We are all related. We're all descendants of Adam and Eve. But not only do we have biological and physical characteristics that we receive from Adam and Eve, we also have some spiritual characteristics that were passed down to us. In other words, we all have some spiritual genetic tendencies because of the fall, the disobedience of the first family. And I want you to think about this because before Genesis chapter 3, every person on earth, although there were only two, but think about this. 
every person that existed, they were in a relationship with God, a perfect relationship with God, and they were in a perfect relationship with each other. But in just a few verses, every person on earth, every person was in a broken relationship with God and a broken relationship with each other. In other words, in that millisecond, when Adam and Eve disobeyed, sin entered into every family in the world. Here's the question I want us to think through this weekend. What came with sin? What was passed down to all of us? Well, we learn from this passage that there are three consequences that made their debut into the human race because of Adam and Eve's disobedience, because of sin. The first one is shame. We talked about it last week, Genesis 3, verse 7. The eyes of both of them were open. And guess what? You know, Satan said, if you take of the fruit, we saw this last week, you'll be like God. Guess what they discovered? They were like God in the sense that they knew good and evil. See, up to this point, they had only known about good. Now, because of their disobedience, they are aware of good and evil, and they are aware of the fact that they have done evil. And they realized that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Why did they hide? Well, all of a sudden, they're naked and they're ashamed. And as I said last week, up until this point, They've never experienced shame before, but now they're naked, and they're ashamed of their nakedness. They know that something has gone wrong. Have you ever dreamed that you were out in public somewhere, and you were naked? Isn't it the greatest feeling in the world when you wake up? I've gone through a series of dreams in my pastoral life. It used to be that I couldn't find my notes or my Bible, and everybody's waiting for me to come out. I used to wake up and think, wow, I'm so glad that was a dream, right? And then I went through a period of time where I couldn't find my socks. I don't know why. I, I'm sure I need to go to counseling, but I couldn't find my socks. And I'd wake up. I wasn't as disturbed about that. But more recently, and it's probably because of my age, I dreamed that I come out here to speak, and I look down, and I realize I forgot my pants. And that's incredibly unnerving. And those are the worst dreams. And I'm up here with my notes and all kinds of things, you know, trying to cover up. The best feeling in the world when you wake up. In the same way, Adam and Eve experienced shame. And what do they do? Well, we immediately try to cover up. That's what they did. They try to hide from God. They try to hide from each other. And so God asked them in verse 11, who told you you were naked? Here's my point. Nobody had to tell them. It was that sense of shame. They knew that they had done wrong and they were ashamed. But what I want you to understand is it began right here in Genesis chapter 3. And as a result, every one of us has carried that sense of shame in our lives from that point on. I had a lady walk up to me last night and say, I heard what you said about the shame. She says, but there's something in my life that happened 20 years ago. And on social media, people still bring it up to me. And she says, what do you do about the shame? I'm going to be honest with you. And Laura's sitting here, and she, she can vouch for this. I struggle big time in the area of shame. I don't know if it's my upbringing. I don't know if it's my strict Baptist heritage for you. Maybe it's your Catholic guilt, right? But there's just that sense of shame. I, I mean, I have always felt that I'm the last one who should be up here in this position talking to you guys on the weekend. I just struggle with that shame. And I realize it's, it's one of Satan's favorite tools in his arsenal because it can, it can almost paralyze us at times. But I don't think I'm alone. In fact, let's just be honest. We're at church this weekend. Raise your hand if you've blown it big time, if you've really screwed up. Since you, don't raise your hand yet. You don't know what the, you see. 
I was going to say in the last five minutes. See, what did you do? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <clears throat> what if you, I mean, how many of you would be honest enough to say, I have really blown it and screwed up since I became a Christian, since I became a follower? Just, now hold your hands there for a second. Look around. Look at all the sinners that attend Hope Community Church. By the way, if you don't have your hand up, leave. Leave right now because we will screw you up hanging around us. We, we're not good people. Right? Now, why did I do that? Why did I point out that we blow, blow it and we, we, we screw up? It's because, see, as I told you, it's one of Satan's favorite tools. Satan loves to come up beside us and whisper in our ears, you ought to be ashamed. You ought to be ashamed. There's nobody in this church as bad as you are. There's nobody here that struggles the way you do. But let me tell you what the right response is, and this is what I shared with the, the lady outside last night. The right response even when people come at you and they remind you of your past, here's the right response. You are exactly right. I'm not a great person. And it's obvious, it's well known that I've blown it. But God. See, that's the key. But God. I know I have a messy past. But God. I know I have issues and baggage. But God. I know there are things in my life that I'm not proud of, but God. A few years ago, I was teaching a new members class on a Saturday morning, and we took our break right in the middle, and I had just been teaching through our mission statement, loving people where they are and encouraging them to grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ. And at our break, a man walked up to me, and he said, do you really love people where they are here at Hope Community Church? I said, absolutely. Is everybody really welcome here at Hope Community Church? I said, without a doubt. He said, how about if you're a mass murderer? Gary Vett was standing about six feet away. I said, hey, Gary, this guy wants to talk to you. <laughs> and sure enough, Gary took him away. And after the class, I saw Gary. I said, what was that all about? He said, Mike, you won't believe this. About 30 years ago, this guy took a rifle and killed five people, including his parents. Spent 28 years in a mental institution. In the process became a follower of Jesus Christ. He's been released. He's at Hope Community Church. I mean, think about this. I was a mass murderer. But God. And some, for some of us even now, you're looking around. You know, right? <laughs> and we forget things like Paul, the great apostle Paul, was responsible for Christians being executed. He was a mass murderer, but God. Moses was a murderer, but God. David was an adulterer and a murderer, but God. You know, we have people here that were involved in the porn industry before they showed up at Hope, but God. People who sold drugs, but God prostitutes and strippers but God let me tell you something if you're here this weekend and you're dealing with shame as I said last week the only thing that's ever going to cover your shame is the righteousness of Jesus it's that exchange let me I love what the great apostle Paul's Romans chapter 7 because we don't expect this from Paul we would expect this maybe from Peter you know some people say the only time Peter opened his mouth was to change feet. Every time he op opened his mouth, he said something wrong. We would expect this from Peter. But the great apostle Paul, who wrote over half the New Testament, 
He says, you know what? The things I know that I should be doing as a Christian, I don't do. Anybody relate to that? No. The things I know I shouldn't be doing, I do all the time. Anybody relate to that, right? And then he says, this wretched man that I am, who is going to set me free from this? And then it's almost like, oh, yeah. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. I forgot. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm telling you, that is the gospel in a nutshell. Jesus came to this earth, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, three days later rose again to cover our sin and our shame. In other words, he chose to do for us, through his righteousness, what we cannot do for ourselves. I'm telling you, I don't care what your past is. In Christ, you're a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new because of God. There's shame. That came from the first family. The second thing is blame, verse 11. And he, that's God speaking, said, who told you that you were naked? Again, nobody. They, they realized it. Have you eaten from the tree I command you not to eat from? The man said, the woman, so he blames God, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. So he blames Eve. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? The woman said, well, the devil made me do it. So she blames the serpent, right? But what I want you to see here is I want you to notice how it separates. Blame begins to separate. They're, they're separated from God, but they're also separated from each other. It's the result of blame. And I'm telling you, just like with Adam and Eve, we do the same thing when we mess up. What do we do? We blame God. We blame others. It's not my fault I'm like this. It's not my fault I did this. In fact, it may be your fault, right? A few years ago, I decided to throw Laura a surprise birthday party. Let me just say that's out of my wheelhouse, okay? That would not be in my list of strengths, throwing a surprise party for anybody. Because one, I had to get her out of the house so I could clean the house. I had to find a caterer. I had to come up with a guest list. But it was a big birthday, and, and I wanted to impress her. And birthdays are big to Laura. We don't celebrate birthdays. We celebrate birth month. And so it's a big, big deal, and I'm, I'm trying to deliver, right? And so I get her a spa day because i got to get her out of the house because i got to get the house clean, and, and, and i got to get the garage clean because the caterer said, I'm going to use that as my staging area. So she's there, and she's kind of on her computer and reading her Bible and doing all the spiritual things she does every day. And, uh, and I'm like, okay, i got to clean the garage. And she's like, why do you have to clean the garage? It's dirty. Don't ask questions. You know? And so I'm, I back her car out of the garage into the driveway. And, I, again, i got a million things in my mind. So I jump in my pickup truck, crank it up, throw it in reverse, right into her car, right into the side. The, the fender, the mirror, right down the passenger door. I mean, just to, you just messed it up big time. And I'm, I am so stressed out. Now I just got more stressed. So I walk in the house, and I said, I'm going to be stressed out today. <laughs> and I just hit your car. You know why? Because I'm trying to throw you a surprise <laughs> birthday party. <laughs> and if your expectations weren't so high, this wouldn't be a problem, right? Right? Like it's her fault. I'm not responsible and crash into her car, right? But we all play the blame game. You know, we wake up in the morning, grab a cup of coffee take a shower, head out into our world. If we're 15 minutes late for work, no problem. Blame it on the traffic. If our kid's having problems in school, it has to be the teacher. If we're having marriage problems, it's not my fault, it's my spouse's fault. In fact, passing the buck has become a characteristic of our society. You go to a restaurant, you check your coat, what does the sign say? Management not responsible for stolen garments. Airlines aren't responsible for delayed flights or misconnections. Well, let me ask you a question, who is, right? 
Parking garages aren't responsible if your car gets damaged. Space Mountain isn't responsible for broken or lost articles, right? The car wash isn't responsible if they break off your antenna. Baby bloomers, baby bloomers, haha, <laughs> baby bloomers blame, blame their parents for their condition, and then the Gen Xs come along and they blame their baby boomer materialistic parents, you know? Millennials come along, they just blame everybody for everything, right? <laughs> Nothing new. All started in the book of Genesis with the first family. How about the third one, fame? I want to be known. I want to be important. I want to be recognized. I want to come out on top. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, God outlines the consequences. that This is why I want to stress. Adam and Eve brought on themselves. They, they introduced to the human race because of their sin and disobedience. Let me just give them to you. First of all, he deals with the serpent. God deals with the serpent. Genesis 3, verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because, of, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. So he takes care of the servant, serpent. He deals with the woman in verse 16. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to children. So part of the fall, ladies, was the pain, the complications that you experienced during childbirth. All the pain connected with it. It was part of their disobedience. But there's one more part in this verse, and I'll come back to it. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. I'll say more about this in a minute, but it says because of the fall, there's going to be tension between husbands and wives. There's going to be tension between men and women. But third, he deals with man and his environment. Genesis 3, verse 17. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. So this is what God said to man. Because you disobeyed me, your environment is cursed. Up until now, your environment has cooperated with you. But from here on out, it is going to be an uphill battle. It is going to be a struggle every day of your life. You're going to work and work and work. You're going to struggle and struggle and struggle. You're going to put in 50, 60, 70-hour weeks. You're finally going to make enough money to retire. And then you're going to die. And you're going to return to dust again. And God says, you're going to live with the foreboding frustration every day. What's the point? I'm going to live. I'm going to make some money. I'm going to die. What's the point? And so God curses man's environment. But I want you to see what Adam does immediately after that. After God puts all of this on him, it says in verse 20, Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. And I know what you men are thinking. It doesn't sound so bad. I, I've called my wife a lot worse than that, and you probably have. But this is what's happening. Adam immediately, because of the, the blame, the shame, everything that's going on, the fame, he separates from his wife. There's a wedge driven in the relationship. So you see, God did not name Eve, Eve. He didn't do that. Eve's name was Eve before, Eve's name wasn't Eve before the fall. You know what it was before the fall? No, that's not right. <laughs> but close, but close. You know what the name was before the fall? Did Adam say, hey, you, hey, hot chick, you know, how do you call her? Literally, literally, her name 
was Adam. Most people don't know that. Her name was Adam. Look what it says, Genesis 5-2. Male and female created he them. I love to point this out. And blessed them and called their name, their name Adam in the day when they were created. Literally, her name was Adam slash female. His name was Adam slash male. They were so one. Two had become so one, they even had the same name. By the way, remember, this is Genesis 5 after the fall. Do you remember what Adam said in Genesis chapter 2? I told you to remember Genesis 2, 23. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. In other words, you are part of me. You are one with me. But in Genesis 5, he says, we're different. We're separate. Now you're going to have your own name. You're Eve. You're the mother of all living. And you're still thinking, well, Mike, what's wrong with that? Women are mothers. The problem is Adam labeled her. Adam's basically saying this. Let me tell you what your job's going to be. Your job is to give me children. And I think that's why for years women were taught that their basic purpose in life was to have children. We used to talk about being barefoot and pregnant, right? And I think that's also why so many women go through such incredible depression when their kids finally grow up and leave home. It's because, see, in their mind, they fulfilled their purpose. And so they're kind of sitting around an empty house twiddling their thumbs thinking, what am I going to do now? But this is what I want you ladies to hear this weekend. And I'll probably get some emails from it, but that's okay. Being a mom is not your primary role in life. Being a mom is not your primary reason for existing. In fact, if you wanted to prioritize your responsibilities, and you'll see this in this series, being a wife to your husband takes precedence over being a mom to your children. And I know you don't want to hear that, but as you're going to see, it's one of the reasons that our families are out of control. Because you're spending way too much energy on the children, and you're not spending enough time with your husband strengthening the foundation of the home, which is your marriage. But let me go ahead and say this. Being a wife is not your primary function as a female. God has a unique calling. God has a unique purpose. God has a unique gifting on every person on this earth, whether they're male or female. In other words, every woman has a call and gifting from God when the kids are home and when the kids are gone. So your highest calling isn't to be a mom. And don't get me wrong, as you're going to see in this series, I believe we ought to be great husbands. And I believe we ought to be great wives. I think we ought to be great moms and dads. But your highest call is not your role as a mom or a dad or a husband or a wife. Your highest call is as a child of God. And I want you to understand, there is a call of God on every man and every woman. Every man, every woman has a unique purpose that God has planned just for you. But see, part of the fall and part of the curse was this idea. This is your job. This is your role. Now go do it. Now let me say one other thing from this passage in Genesis 3.16, since I'm such a role here. God is speaking to Eve directly, but he's speaking to all women indirectly. And this is what he says, Genesis 3.16. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Some of you men just found that verse for the first time. You're like, where's that again, Mike? Because I'm putting that on the refrigerator, you know. I mean, what a great deal. She's going to want me all the time. And I get to boss her around. This is a win-win, see. But before you get too excited, remember, this is a part of the curse. This is a result of the fall. See, as men, we were never originally meant to rule over. 
We were designed to serve and lead, not dominate. In fact, let me tell you what this word means. It'll give you some clarity. The Hebrew word here for desire, your desire will be for your husband, is the, it's the Hebrew word teshua, which means nothing. Don't worry about it. But it means this, to be independent from and to dominate. See, her desire is going to be to be independent from and dominate her husband. And don't forget that God is saying, let me show you the consequences of sin, the consequences of the fall. But this is what it's saying. Ladies, you're going to try to dominate him, but he's going to dominate you. Now, this isn't saying that God's happy about it. In fact, this isn't even how God planned it. He's saying, this is what you guys brought on yourself. Now, let me just add this. In Christ, Ephesians 5, we'll get into it another time in this series, we don't have to dominate each other. In Christ, we get to serve each other. In Christ, we get to love each other. But when we're not walking in Christ and when we're not doing life God's way, you know what happens? It becomes a competition. In fact, the, the root of this Hebrew word, teshua, is competition. And in other words, as husband and wife, as men and women, we're always going to be competing with others. You can have 10 million women watches from Washington, D.C. to L.A. But God says part of the curse is you're going to try to dominate him, but it ain't going to happen. I'm just telling you, you know, don't shoot the messenger. All part of the fall, all came from the first family. Shame, blame, fame, incredible mess. And let me tell you why you should be concerned. In 1947, which was 70 years ago, amazing to me, 70, that's even older than me. 1947, a sociologist and historian, his name was Carl Zimmerman, not a Christian, wrote a book. His book was entitled Family and Civilization. And in this book, he compared the disintegration of various cultures with the decline of the American unit, uh, family unit in America. So th this is 1947. And, and his study identifies some specific patterns of behavior that were consistent among the disintegration of these cultures. And he discovered this, that right before each culture fell into total chaos, anarchy, disarray, before it disintegrated, there were certain conditions that became prominent. You want to know what they are? Here's the first one. Increased in rapid, easy, causeless divorce. And every culture that disintegrated. Every one. I'm not happy. I want a divorce. I'm not satisfied. I want a divorce. This isn't what I thought it was going to be. I want a divorce. You're not meeting my expectations. I want a divorce. Understand, that's why half of first marriages, 60% of second marriages, and 73% of third marriages end a divorce. Rapid, easy, causeless divorce. That was the first one. Second, decreased number of children and population decay. What did the average American woman, how many children did she give birth to? 1960, 3.7. It's been cut in half to 1.9. It actually continues to decrease. Third, the elimination of the real meaning of the marriage ceremony. 42% of Americans believe that marriage has become obsolete. How about that? 
cohabitating has become widely accepted even among Christians, 41%. Millennials, 72%. Why do I constantly point that out about millennials? Because all you got to do is study history. Whatever the college kids believe, that's where we're going. That's where we're going. In fact, millennials believe that marriage is not only acceptable, I quote, it's preferable to marriage. Fourth, the breakdown of most inhibitions against adultery. Donnie and I, our care pastor, we were talking. You would be amazed at how many people come to our office and proudly declare to us that they're committing adultery. They're having an affair. And you know what they will often say? And I don't feel guilty about it because God wants me to be happy. To which I will say, oh, no, 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 no. Got that one wrong. God wants you to be obedient. Big difference. The breakdown of most inhibitions against adultery. Fifth, Revolts of youth against parents so that parenthood became more and more difficult for those who did try to raise children. Can I get a witness? Is parenting getting more and more difficult? I look at my kids who are raising my grandkids and I, I shake my head. I'm like, I do not envy you at all. Not in this culture. Six, the rapid rise and spread of juvenile delinquency. Do you remember the statistics? And I didn't even get into teenage crime. 75% of high school have used addictive substances. 46% continue to. 70% will have sex before 19. 33% will become pregnant. You say, well, Mike, I don't see that many pregnant teenage girls. Have you heard of a thing called abortion? The rates are staggering among teenage girls. Rapid rise and spread of juvenile delinquency. Seventh, common acceptance of all forms of sex perversion. The Bible term would be common acceptance of all forms of sexual immorality. What's sexual immorality? What's the biblical definition of sexual immorality? Any sex between any people outside of a husband and wife in a committed marriage relationship. Have we gotten to the place in our society where kind of the attitude is, hey, if it works for you, it works for you. It's none of my business, right? We just accept it. Now, I don't think I need to restate the obvious. It, 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 it's happening. It's happening. But see, in this series, I don't want us to focus on how, how bad things have gotten. I want us to focus on what can we do to build strength back into our homes? What can we do to stop the cycle? What can we do to get families, maybe, maybe your family, back on course? Now, next weekend, we're going to start by addressing, and I'm doing this intentionally, we're going to address the role of single parents. And the reason I'm going to do that, because James 1.27 says that pure and undefiled religion is when you take care of the widows and the orphans. I believe that single parents and their children are the widows and orphans of our generation. And I really do believe that it takes a body of believers. I think it takes a village to come around them and to support them. And so I'm going to be talking about how as a congregation can we respond to the single parents next week. And in fact, it would be a great weekend if you know a single parent, to invite them to come. Because I can promise you this, they are going to be encouraged about what we talked about. So that'll be next week. Now, if you're wondering what the solution for our families is, in case you hate me and you're never going to come back again, I'll give you a preview. It all begins with Jesus. You say, well, my, Jesus can't be the answer for everything. Let me show you one of the most interesting verses. And I never even understood it this way till I began to dig into the Hebrew a little bit. Genesis chapter 28, verse 14, God is speaking to Abraham. This is what God says to Abraham. Your descendants will be as the dust of the earth. 
You shall spread abroad to the west, the east, the north, the south. And in your seed, and I used to think that meant the Jewish race. It doesn't mean the Jewish race. If you dig into it, it's a reference to the coming Messiah. It's a reference to Jesus. In your, you and your seed, that's Jesus. All the families of the earth shall be blessed. You know what that says? It says Jesus came to repair the family that was broken in Genesis chapter 3. But I will just give you a little insight before we get into it. If you don't believe this, you're not going to fix your family. Because God created the family, designed the family. And this is the rule book, the textbook on how to make it work the way God designed so when we go the next few weeks, I, I'm just going to be honest with you. Sometimes what I say, this will be a shock to you, won't be politically correct. But it will be based on God's word. And all I'm doing is pointing you in the direction. You have to decide what you want to do with it. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Family's a mess. In fact, I don't even think we needed this message to point it out. But Father, it's important that we create the tension to realize we can put our head in the sand and pretend it's not true, but it's true. But we know that the answer lies in you, your truth, your principles, your precepts. So I look forward to see what you're going to do in all of our lives. And I pray for those right now whose families are in disarray and maybe in some cases total disarray, that they will hang on, that they will hang in there, that they will hear the truths of your word. Because as Jesus reminded us in John chapter 6, when you know the truth, truth has set you free. May we find freedom and peace and reconciliation throughout this time. In your name we pray. Amen.